Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. In past Tech Policy Press articles and podcast discussions, we've discussed a range of issues that arise from the sheer scale of major tech firms, including Amazon, Facebook, and Google. We've discussed the harms to workers, perverse incentives, and anti-competitive behaviors that result from their exploitation of platform economics and network effects at scale. We've also discussed how new thinking on competition and antitrust law is being applied, including most notably at the U.S. Federal Trade Commission under Chair Lena Khan who is known as an innovative thinker on competition and antitrust law, in no small part due to her work exploring how the rise of the dominant digital platforms revealed shortcomings in the status quo in antitrust. In today's episode of the podcast, we're going to hear directly from Chair Khan, as well as FTC Commissioner Rebecca Kelly Slaughter, who was appointed to a Democratic seat in the commission in 2018. This isn't a typical episode. What you'll hear is audio of a special event hosted on Tuesday, July 19th, by the Economic Security Project and the Law and Political Economy Project. These organizations brought together scholars, advocates, and government officials to discuss how new thinking and research seeks to reframe dominant economic paradigms and why it is so important to redefine and challenge monopolies. The event, Resourcing a New Paradigm, the Future of Anti-Monopoly Research, was introduced by Becky Chow, Director of Anti-Monopoly at the Economic Security Project, and it's her voice you'll hear first. After remarks from Chair Khan and Commissioner Slaughter, we'll hear a panel discussion moderated by the Open Markets Institute's legal director, Sandeep Vahisan. By the end of this 90 minutes, I think you'll be up to date on the key ideas, challenges, and opportunities ahead for the intellectual project to redefine anti-monopoly thinking and law to pursue not just economic, but also social and racial justice. Here's Becky Chow. All right. Welcome and thank you so much for joining us for today's event, Resourcing a New Paradigm, the Future of Anti-Monopoly Research, co-hosted by the Economic Security Project and the Law and Political Economy Project. I'm Becky Chow. I'm the Director of Anti-Monopoly here at Economic Security Project. We're an ideas advocacy organization that advocates for economic justice. We entered the anti-monopoly movement out of a belief that the fight to counter concentrated power is critical to advancing a broader worldview of how and for whom the economy should work. You'll hear a little bit more about the Law and Political Economy Project when Amy introduces Commissioner Slaughter. This event builds off the investments in academic scholarship that we made at the beginning of this year to support anti-monopoly research. There's no better time for anti-monopoly scholarship. The moment we're in demands deep critical inquiry into the structure of the economy, who it works for, who it's stacked against, and who writes the rules, as well as creative, innovative insights and solutions to build a more equitable, democratic, resilient, and sustainable economy. Anti-monopoly research, which gets at the heart of how we structure markets, is core to this interdisciplinary project. At today's event, you'll hear about how we're defining the contours of the anti-monopoly field and explore the broader transformative goals embedded in it. You'll learn how anti-monopoly fits into a broader vision of a post-neoliberal multiracial democracy and what anti-monopoly entails beyond just antitrust and competition policy. 
Anti-Monopoly grapples with the central theme of power and raises important questions about the democratic values worth prioritizing in a fair competitive economy. And all our speakers joining us today are leading this work. And I'm so excited that we're joined by two esteemed members of the Federal Trade Commission today, along with some of our academic grantees. Our incredible panel is moderated by the brilliant Sandeep Van Heesen, Legal Director of the Open Markets Institute. So without further ado, I have the distinct pleasure of introducing Chair of the Federal Trade Commission, Lena Khan, to deliver opening remarks. Chair Khan was sworn in on June 15, 2021. Prior to becoming head of the FTC, Chair Khan was an Associate Professor of Law at Columbia Law School. She also previously served as counsel to the U.S. House Judiciary Sub uh, Committee's Subcommittee on Antitrust, Commercial, and Administrative Law, Legal Advisor to FTC Commissioner Rohit Chopra, and Legal Director at the Open Markets Institute. Chair Khan's scholarship on antitrust and competition policy has been published in the Columbia Law Review, Harvard Law Review, University of Chicago Law Review, and Yale Law Journal. She is a graduate of Williams College and Yale Law School. Chair Khan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much, Becky. Um, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, it's so great to be here with you all. Thanks so much for inviting me. Um, it's such an honor to be here with so many scholars and thinkers whose work I so respect and have learned so much from. Um, and it's especially great to, to be here uh, as the opener for Commissioner Slaughter, who has just been such a terrific uh, partner at the FTC. Um, I so admire the economic security project and the support and leadership that they've provided in helping drive forward the anti-monopoly movement. Um, and I was actually a, a student in Amy Kapczynski's first law and political economy seminar in my 3L year. And it's just been so incredible to see that initial nascent effort to kind of give language and framing to this orientation, um, to see that evolve into this incredible community and network of scholars and practitioners and policy thinkers who are providing such important intellectual leadership at such a pivotal time. Um, I think LPE's clarity of vision in recentering the role of law in shaping markets and economic outcomes and denaturalizing what can so often be described as the product of metaphysical forces rather than concrete legal regimes and specific policy decisions is so, so essential. So thank you so much both to ESP and LPE for the spaces that you've built for these interventions and engagements. I know it reflects an enormous amount of work like by people like Becky and Corinne and Raul and Luke. I'm sure I'm forgetting many, many people, but I'm just very grateful for um, the spaces that you've built for this type of engagement. I think the moment that we're in is a real testament to the power of research and scholarship in particular to lead not just a, a paradigm shift in thought, but also in practice. Um, I think we see this in a host of ways right now. There are a whole set of anti-monopoly policy initiatives underway in Congress, in the administration, at the state and local level. I think all things considered, we are still fairly early in the implementation and execution phase, but I think the anti-monopoly research and scholarship that communities like LPE and, S and ESP have produced and cultivated has laid out a very, very solid foundation. Being in my current role um, on the enforcement and policy side of the ledger, I think it's even more apparent to me now just how essential the work that you all are doing really is. I think there are a few categories of scholarship that really jump out in particular as, as having played this role to lay out this foundation and chart out 
a path forward. Um, so I thought I would just at a high level share, you know, what from my perspective has has really helped do that. Um, so one is, is scholarship and, and work that has really helped expose how particular problems have been enabled or overlooked by existing legal regimes. So I'm thinking here of, for example, work by Brian Kalachi on how the greater legal tolerance or vertical restraints has facilitated the rise of franchising and the use of franchising to centralize power and control while shedding risk and liability. Nosita Gankadaran's work mapping out how existing policy frameworks have neglected to capture or fully address the harms of digital surveillance has also done this. And I think this type of work can be enormously useful, both in surfacing the legal contingency of certain arrangements or problems, um, while also signaling a path forward through redressing these blind spots and legal frameworks. Um, I think there's a second category that has also been enormously useful, and, and that's really the kind of paradigm shifting work that has really forced us to reckon with what a body of law really stands for. Um, so I'm thinking here, for example, of Sinjukta Paul's work, uh, reconceiving of antitrust law as a mechanism for allocating coordination rights, which I think is a really fantastic example of an intervention that can really redefine how we look at a body of law and its purpose and possibilities. Um, this type of work in particular, I think, can be especially useful in enforcing policymakers to really reckon with an alternative alternative set of values that should or could be motivating how we construe a set of laws or policies. Um, and third, I would point to, you know, scholarship that is effectively mining existing authorities and statutes for an expanded or alternative set of tools and levers. Um, so I'm thinking, for example, here of, of Sandeep Fahisen's work on unfair methods of competition rulemaking, or Luke Kareen's work uh, excavating the FTC's unfairness authority to reassess its reach and scope. Um, and this type of work, I particularly put in the bucket of an enforcer's dream, um, scholarship that is very concretely mapping out how our existing tools can be put to new or better uses. Um, needless to say, this is just really scratching the surface of the types of research and scholarship that have already been so fruitful um, as we look to translate the anti-monopoly movement in the context of scholarship and research into practice. Um, and I'll just want to, I'll just close by noting two areas in particular that I think are especially critical for the FTC um, and that continue to invite greater scholarly engagement. Um, first is, you know, what do we really mean by unfair methods of competition? Um, this is in some ways a question that goes to the heart of the FTC's existence and reason for being. Um, I take very seriously that the text of the FTC's statute uh, uses this term unfair methods of competition. Um, but I think there are really still basic questions to be engaging regarding how we distinguish fair from unfair methods of competition, um, questions that are rarely frontally engaged among antitrust practitioners, but that are really critical for us as we chart a path forward. Um, and second is, you know, how do we really think about the full scope and reach of our unfairness authority? Um, so our unfair or deceptive acts or practices authority is another key pillar of the FTC's mission and mandate. Um, and our unfairness authority has been um, codified into this three-pronged statutory test. But even within those parameters, I think there are a whole set of unanswered questions that are really worth um, and invite deeper probing in terms of what we mean by substantial injury, um, what it really means to engage in the certain types of balancing uh, inquiries that that framework invites us to do. Um, and so those are just two examples of kind of within the FTC inquiries that we're deeply engaged in that I think will be really critical for us going forward, where I think 
engagement by communities like LPE and ESP will be really critical. So I'll just close uh, there by again, thanking you all so much for inviting me and for uh, creating the, the space and the momentum for the types of discussion. I think the, the moment that we're in really couldn't have been achieved by the work that you all have done. And so thank you for everything you've already done and, and continue to do to make this all possible. Terrific. Thanks so much for that characteristically both incisive and generous set of remarks, uh, Chair Khan, and, and also for your leadership and your pathbreaking thinking in this area. It's lovely to be surpassed by your former students. So I wanted to take a moment um, to say a few words about the Law and Political Economy Project and also to welcome you before introducing Commissioner Slaughter. Um, I am just so delighted and frankly, a little bit amazed that we could get this all-star panel together because these are really the people that I think of as shaping the new approaches, both uh, to to anti-monopoly thinking um, and and action. And so to have them take a few moments away from their writing and their um, uh, advocacy and enforcement obligations and to talk to us about what's um, coming and what is missing in forthcoming uh, scholarly approaches to antitrust is just wonderful. Uh, so thanks again also to the ESP staff and to the LPE staff that made this possible. Um, and Becky for, for, for fostering the, the vision that, that put this all together. So I'll say just a few words about the Law and Political Economy Project for those of you that aren't familiar with it. I'm a faculty director of that project, and we are very glad to collaborate here with ESP because we see anti-monopoly as one of the most vibrant areas for what we call LPE, Law and Political Economy Thinking. Um, And as you'll hear, the the anti-monopoly framework itself is capacious, broader than antitrust, and uh, importantly, um, spans what I think of as political economy, thinking about the politics of the construction of our economy. Uh, so the One Political Economy Project began several years ago. It begins, uh, it brings together a network of scholars, practitioners, and students who are working to develop innovative intellectual, pedagogical, and political interventions to shape uh, the study of political economy and law. And our work broadly is rooted in the insight that politics and the economy cannot be separated and that both are constructed in essential respects by law. Um, The project emerged from the conviction that developments over the last several decades in legal scholarship and policy really helped to facilitate the rising inequality and precarity, the political alienation, the entrenchment of racial hierarchies and other kinds of intersectional exploitation, also ecological um, and uh, social uh, catastrophe really that, that looms on our horizon. And we're hoping and working to reverse those trends by supporting scholarly work that maps where we've gone wrong and that develops ideas and proposals to democratize our political economy and build a more just and equal and sustainable future. Uh, if you're interested in our work in other areas, uh, have a look at our website and our blog, the Law and Political Economy Project, lpeproject.org. Um, so just having laid out that very broad brush um, of, of what we're trying to accomplish in law and political economy, um, I think you already begin to see the obvious connections with today's conversation. Antitrust law is an anti-monopoly thinking are really critical Um, to one, begin to to, to sort of map and understand how various kinds of law, again, not just antitrust, but also as we'll hear a little bit about today, 
corporate law, intellectual property law, the law of franchising, the law governing data, um, all of that, um, how has law been constructed to help um, concentrate corporate and private power and contribute to monopoly power, um, but also to disable certain kinds of or make more difficult certain kinds of democratic governance of our economy. So i um, very excited to hear the panel that comes. And I also have the distinct honor of introducing Commissioner Rebecca Kelly Slaughter. Commissioner Slaughter was sworn in as an FTC commissioner on May 2nd, 2018, as a graduate of our fine law school, Yale Law School, um, and came to the commission already with more than a decade of experience in competition, privacy, and consumer protection law, including while serving as chief counsel to uh, Senator Charles Schumer of New York. Commissioner Slaughter has been really at the forefront of thinking in this area and including about how uh, equity, and uh, concerns about um, inclusion can be connected to antitrust law. I hope we might hear a little bit about that today. And it's also going to, I think, uh, touch on some of the ways that the commission and the Biden administration are working to address uh, monopoly power and how our thinking and data might need to be developed to do this work best. So with that, let me turn it over to Commissioner Slaughter with great thanks. Thank you so much, Amy, for that kind introduction. Um, and thank you for all of the work you and LPE are doing. I think it is so important. I really want to echo Chair Khan's words of admiration and thanks for the research that is being done. It is so important. We do pay attention to it. It does help change the direction of our work. Um, and, and I'm just deeply profoundly grateful for it and so incredibly honored to get to be here with you today. Um, as Professor Kipchinsky suggested, I do want to talk a little bit about the intersection of equity and the concept of anti-racist antitrust. Uh, but before I delve into that, I want to thank not only everyone involved in this project, but everyone in the anti-monopoly advocacy community for so effectively raising public awareness about why monopoly power, antitrust law, and competition policy matters so much to Americans in their everyday lives. A lot of our conversation and a lot of the terms we use can feel very academic or political or abstract, but we all know that lack of competition is not an abstract concept. It is very real for real people when we're shopping for food or picking up prescriptions from the pharmacy, pricing out mobile phone plans, or trying to seek better pay and benefits from potential new employers. The research of today's panelists highlights the important questions about how market power plays into digital infrastructure, the health and safety of workers, racial surveillance capitalism, and even the electric vehicle industry. Because market power and market concentration seep into so much of our economy and daily life, it really is important to understand anti-monopoly work as interdisciplinary. Just as the antitrust agencies, FTC and DOJ, have statutory tools to help prevent and fight monopoly power and anti-competitive market structure and conduct, so too do other agent government agencies. As we know from President Biden's executive order on competition, of which we marked the one-year anniversary last week, there are numerous ways other agencies can help contribute to the anti-monopoly agenda and promote more competitive and fair markets for consumers and workers. President Biden has also advanced a cross-agency approach to promoting racial equity. And I want to focus today on the intersection of this work with anti-monopoly initiatives. 
President Biden issued two executive orders on this topic last year. The first was the executive order on advancing racial equity and support for underserved communities through the federal government. This order, like the competition executive order, called for a whole of government approach to advancing racial equity. As the president said, entrenched disparities in our laws and public policies and in our public and private institutions have often denied that equal opportunity to individuals and communities. Our nation deserves an ambitious whole of government equity agenda that matches the scale of the opportunities and challenges we face. Alongside that, the president issued another executive order on improving government diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility in the federal workforce. This order was focused on strengthening the federal government's ability to recruit, hire, develop, promote, and retain our nation's talent and remove barriers to equal opportunity. We all know the adage, personnel is policy. We need diverse staff and an inclusive culture to ensure diverse and inclusive enforcement of the law. With these executive orders as a backdrop, I'm gonna talk about the intersection of competition and equity and what we're doing at the FTC today to apply an equity focused lens to our antitrust enforcement and competition policy agenda. But first I'll talk about why. Why do we need to consider racial equity and how can we respond to critics of an anti-racist antitrust agenda? Next, I'll discuss what is happening at the FTC today and how we're working to carry out the vision of the president's executive orders. And finally, I'll discuss how research and data are critical to help inform and support the FTC's work to address structural inequity in markets and to not unwittingly reinforce existing structural inequity. Clarity about the effect of competition enforcement on equity is necessary, not just from a moral perspective, but to ensure that our substantive work is being carried out effectively and consistently with our statutory mandate. We know that systemic inequality is widespread in our economy. A growing body of research, and I encourage more research on this topic, shows that market power abuses disproportionately impact black and brown communities, rural communities, and other historically disadvantaged communities. For instance, covenants not to compete in employment contracts non-competes are pervasive and have been shown to have an outsized negative effect on the wages of women, older workers, and minorities. Moreover, for decades, the lack of access to capital has been a barrier to entry for Black and other minority-owned businesses. Liquidity constraints are compounded by pervasive predatory lending practices in minority communities. This results in limited economic opportunity, which is problematic on its face, but it also fuels monopoly power by limiting market entry by minority entrepreneurs and the potential product quality and innovation benefits they offer. These are just a few examples of documented disparate impacts of racial inequity on markets. Continued scholarship will help uncover more. I think many in the audience today probably agree with what I'm saying, but I wanna pause for a minute to talk about how I respond to the pushback from some quarters that considerations of social problems like racism have no role in antitrust enforcement. This perspective stems from the noble sounding idea that antitrust, in, antitrust enforcement should be value neutral, a just the, facts, just the facts approach to law enforcement. I reject the idea that we ever could, even if we wanted to, be value neutral on our enforcement. Our decisions about what cases to bring reflect underlying values. Our choice is only whether to acknowledge that fact. The concept of value neutral antitrust enforcement is at best aspirational, like the myth that race blindness will eliminate racial discrimination. Antitrust necessarily addresses fundamental and economic and market structures. 
In the United States, economic and market structures are historically and presently inequitable. So when we make decisions about whether and where to enforce the law or how to deploy our enforcement resources, we are making decisions that will influence those economic structures. Our decisions can either reinforce existing structural inequities or work towards breaking them down. I would prefer we chose the latter. Even if we could be value neutral, I don't believe we should be. In general, we accept that law enforcement is inherently laden with value judgments. In the criminal context, for example, we're comfortable with prosecutors explicitly setting out values-based priorities, such as a focus on white collar or violent crime. Prioritization is a fact of civil law enforcement too. As with other enforcers, the FTC is funded by a small, way too small, portion of the finite supply of taxpayer dollars. As a result, we must prioritize our work. We do this based on value judgments all the time. The FTC's Bureau of Consumer Protection has long been comfortable focusing its enforcement resources on problems faced by, by underserved communities, a fact that I'm very proud of. Through research and experience, we've learned that fraud, as well as certain other business practices, have a disproportionate effect on communities of color compared with white communities. The FTC's Every Community Initiative, created in 2014, has served to modernize and expand the agency's work and to develop a strategic plan for addressing disparities and other issues affecting communities of color. In 2021, we launched a public website that makes it easier for low-income populations and legal services organizations to report fraud and secure redress for consumers. Since 2016, we've brought more than 25 actions where we could identify that conduct either specifically targeted or disproportionately affected communities of color. Recently, the Bureau of Consumer Protection has focused on predatory lending as well as discrimination in auto financing, two areas that we know particularly harm black communities. These are not value neutral enforcement decisions. Similarly, we should not be value neutral in discharging our competition mandate. To address racial equity and antitrust is not to invent new law or abdicate the agency's existing obligations. As I noted earlier, data shows the paucity of minority-owned businesses and limited growth over the last two decades. A growing mountain of data also makes clear that certain business practices, including a variety of covenants not to compete, have had a disparate impact on racial and other minorities. At the same time, we have observed disparate harm of new technologies on racial minorities, such as the use of AI-powered employment screenings that only provide the veneer of objectivity. Playing whack-a-mole to address new harms to consumers is neither efficient nor effective. Instead, we need to think strategically about using antitrust law and competition policy as a tool for combating structural racism, a system built on a social construct that favors incumbents. We need to be asking how we can use our enforcement tools to ensure that markets are competitive and empower historically underrepresented and economically disadvantaged consumers rather than incumbents. To protect consumers and effectively promote competition with lasting impact, we need to address the underlying problems in the system. We need to be actively anti-racist. So how can we do that in practice? A start has been the FTC's Equity Action Plan, which we put together under Chair Khan's leadership. An internal cross-agency team worked with stakeholders throughout the FTC to create this plan in response to the president's exec executive order. It addresses not only our competition and consumer protection work, but also the agency's procurement and contracting and internal diversity, equity, and inclusion issues. On the competition side, attorneys, economists, and others work together to identify barriers to equitable outcomes in antitrust enforcement and concrete actions we can take to address these barriers. 
First, the agency is changing the way we select cases for investigation and enforcement. Traditionally, the agency has selected competition cases based on the significance of potential harm, the strength of evidence of harm, and the impact of the potential remedy. The Bureau of Competition has considered the impact on specific communities in individual cases, particularly those where the relevant products are used by target groups, for example, seniors or special needs children. However, it has not systematically collected and considered this type of information in case selection or done so with a focus on demographics. Given the need to better understand the effects of anti-competitive conduct and acquisitions on vulnerable communities, a change was necessary. The Bureau of Competition is now collecting more granular data in its antitrust investigations, specifically focused on the demographics of affected communities. By doing this, we can understand where and how communities of color may be disproportionately harmed by proposed mergers or anti-competitive conduct. One specific issue we are looking at are restrictive covenants not to compete. Relatedly, our merger analyses now regularly seek and examine data related to non-competes in deals. I'd like to highlight a few specific actions the commission has already taken with the racial equity aspect. One of the FTC's focus areas has long been the healthcare industry, and we know that healthcare is replete with racial inequity. Nowhere is this clearer than with insulin, where the high prices have harmed so many, but where the burden has been particularly acute in black and brown communities. At multiple open commission meetings, we heard from insulin patients and their family members about the crippling high cost of insulin, a heightened burden for patients with high deductible insurance plans or no insurance at all. Last month, the commission took two steps in response to the horrifying problem of high insulin prices. First, we issued the policy statement of the Federal Trade Commission on rebates and fees in exchange for excluding lower cost, cost, lower cost drug products. It is a mouthful. Um, the title and the many words in the title are not where you should get stuck. You should focus on the fact that in that statement, we committed to deploy the full panoply of the FTC statutory tools both consumer protection and competition related to tackle high pharmaceutical prices, including the price of insulin. The commission also unanimously voted to authorize a 6B inquiry of contracting practices of PBMs, an entrenched intermediary in the U US pharmaceutical market who wield immense power. They influence which prescription drugs patients can access and how much they pay, as well as the profits and losses that pharmacies accrue from dispensing prescriptions. While PBMs themselves may not be well known, their aggregate impact is felt by the roughly 8 million Americans and their family and friends who rely on insulin to control diabetes. As we learn from public testimony, in at least some cases, both the insured and uninsured have had to pay more and more for insulin. Apparent distortions in insulin markets have led to patients rationing insulin and resulting fatalities. And since diabetes, like other health problems, disproportionately affects lower income communities and communities of color, problems in insulin markets further exacerbate disparities in health equity. Disentangling the root causes of patient harm in the complex web that is our healthcare market is not easy. But as enforcers, we have an obligation to stay abreast of the evolving ecosystem and thoroughly investigate the underlying contractual relationships, business practices, and data. This includes empirically assessing and addressing limitations in our understanding of this information. It also means that as the evidence grows more compelling, as it has for market powers to disparate racial impact, we employ the full range of tools in our enforcement toolkit to remedy the harms faced by patients. Our 6B inquiry and policy statement were, in no small part, products of community engagement. Testimony of real patients impacted by insulin prices at public fora helped move the needle.
Input of the people that we ultimately serve, their stories, data, and core concerns are critical to helping the FTC address alleged abuses of market power. And I want to take a moment to particularly thank and applaud Chair Khan for starting the practice of making the FTC more accessible to this public input and giving us the opportunity to have public comments at open meetings. Um, I know she cares very much about democratizing the process processes of the agency and demystifying them. And I think these have been important steps. And I think the insulin work is where you can see um, how they pay out, pay off in practice. Healthcare provider and hospital mergers are another area where we can deploy racial equity lens, where the rising cost of healthcare can have a disproportionate effect on communities of color. The FTC has challenged numerous hospital mergers in the past few years that would have increased the cost of healthcare including one case in Rhode Island where Chair Khan and I, uh, we filed a challenge to the merger, but Chair Khan and I also issued a concurring statement to say that we would have included a count to challenge the merger for harm to the nursing labor market. And that is a really important point about workers. Another initiative that the FTC is focused on as part of its equity plan is competition for workers' labor. Monopoly is a better known concern in antitrust, but monopsony, the exercise of market power by a buyer of an input, can be just as noxious. Labor monopsony, in particular, is where there are only a few employers in a given market. Such a market structure enables a limited number of employers to wield outsized market power by depressing workers' wages below the level that would have otherwise prevailed in a competitive market with more employment options. Studies have shown that labor monopsony is pervasive across the country. Specifically, the metrics in the DOJ and FTC's horizontal merger guidelines show that the average labor market is highly concentrated. This high concentration of employer power especially harms low-wage workers, as well as Black and brown workers. The Commission is committed to probing the effects that mergers and other business practices have on competition for workers' labor. As we prioritize conduct that harms workers, we should focus on those labor markets that employ large numbers of workers of color. Just today, mere hours ago, we announced a memorandum of understanding with the NLRB to ensure that we're sharing relevant data with the labor-focused arm of the federal government about key issues such as labor market concentration, one-sided contract terms, and labor developments in the gig economy. In addition to the substance of cases we pursue and the data and information we collect, we must focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion within the profession and specifically within the FTC. That means actively working to improve diversity in recruitment, hiring, promotion, and leadership. We must be intentional about the professional development and advancement of all underrepresented people. These efforts are not only critical to creating a diverse and inclusive workplace for our staff, they will also help us in our substantive work. People from diverse backgrounds bring different perspectives to the table and improve our work product. A commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion is an obligation, I believe, for the entire competition community to take on. We need to continue holding thoughtful and open discussions about how antitrust law and competition policy can make our nation and economy more equitable and just. So that's just some of what the FTC has been doing. But where do we go from here? First, we need to keep fine-tuning our case selection strategy. How can we proactively identify competition issues that have a disproportionate impact on vulnerable communities? Research and fact-finding about markets where potentially anti-competitive conduct or mergers have occurred or are occurring will greatly aid the FTC. 
I really applaud those who are already conducting this research and gathering data and, and encourage more so that law enforcers and policymakers can learn and deploy our resources accordingly. Further research may be useful in markets that are critical for basic life, food, grocery stores, healthcare, prescription drugs, and work. Research about the intersection of civil rights law and antitrust law would also be relevant. Uh, the deputy director of the Bureau of Competition, John Newman, recently wrote an article about how antitrust law and racial and about antitrust law and racial inequity that discussed the 1981 case where the antitrust laws were used to stop a conspiracy to reduce competition, in part through racist threats and intimidation. Vietnamese fishermen in Galveston, Texas, alleged that a group of fishermen, including members of the KKK, had conspired to force the plaintiff class of Vietnamese fishermen to curtail their commercial fishing business with the goal of eliminating or reducing competition. In this case, antitrust law was used to stop overtly racist action against minority business owners. I'm curious whether there may be similar ways to deploy antitrust law in today's markets. Another issue that intrigued me is one that was first surfaced to me by Leslie Overton, a former deputy assistant attorney general in the antitrust division which is how do we incorporate anti-racist thinking when we're thinking about remedies for a merger and divestitures and specifically whether and how we can consider making sure that minority owned businesses have the opportunity to be divestiture buyers and that we aren't inadvertently screening against and, and employing conscious or unconscious biases uh, in our screening for divestiture buyers that might discriminate against businesses that are otherwise well poised to replace lost competition. So for example, duration of, in a particular industry may be a proxy that does not reflect the capability of a firm, but may serve to exclude well-qualified black and other minority owned businesses. Additional research and thinking about this topic could help more diverse business owners learn about, participate and be successful in the divestiture process. I don't claim to have all the answers as to how to thoroughly implement an anti-racist agenda in our competition work. Our agency's initiatives are intended to be a meaningful start, but much more is needed. I look forward to continued learning, thinking, and discussion with you. Ultimately, we need to work collectively to improve and evolve in our ongoing efforts to tackle systemic racism. So thank you to all of you researchers who are already working on this, and I hope more are inspired to take up this opportunity to meaningfully contribute to the anti-monopoly movement. Thank you very much. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider subscribing. Go to techpolicy.press slash podcast and subscribe via your favorite podcast service. While you're there, sign up for our newsletter. You're listening to a special episode featuring audio of an event hosted Tuesday, July 19th, 2022 by the Economic Security Project and the Law and Political Economy Project. Next is a panel discussion moderated by Sandeep Vahisan, Open Markets Institute's legal director. Great. Thank you for those excellent Remarks, Commissioner Slaughter. Thank you to Becky, Corinne, Raul, and Amy for organizing this event and inviting me to moderate. I'm truly delighted to facilitate today's discussion among four scholars who are doing cutting-edge anti-monopoly work. Their scholarship exemplifies the breadth of anti-monopoly. It is much more than just antitrust law or breaking up large corporations, as we will soon learn and discover. I'll introduce the panelists and quickly turn it over to them for opening remarks. 
Elettra Bietti is a joint postdoctoral fellow at the NYU School of Law and the Digital Life Initiative at Cornell Tech in New York. She recently defended a dissertation at Harvard Law School on platform regulation and political theory. Elettra is affiliated to the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University and to the Information Society at Yale Law School. Second panelist, Brian Kalachi, is chief economist at Open Markets. He has published writing on economics and policy in scholarly and popular outlets, including Harvard Business Review, Enterprise and Society, and Boston Review. He has previously worked at Data and Society, the Strategic Organizing Center, and Workers United. Sita Peña Gangadaran is an associate professor in the Department of Media and Communications at the London School of Economics and Political Science, where she studies technology, governance, and justice. Grounded in democratic theories of media and critical studies of technology and policy, her work addresses inclusion and marginalization. She currently leads our data bodies, which examines the impact of data collection and data-driven technologies on members of marginalized communities in the United States. Uh, last but certainly not least, Lenore Palladino is an assistant professor of economics and public policy at UMass Amherst, research associate at the UMass Amherst Political Economy Research Institute, and a fellow at the Roosevelt Institute. Lenore's work centers on economic democracy, ending shareholder primacy, and the relationship between corporate governance and the labor market. She frequently works with policymakers, the media, and organizers in corporate and financial policy, and is the author of a forthcoming book, Good Company, Economic Policies for Innovative Enterprises. So our each of our four panelists is going to speak for about five minutes on a range of topics, including what is anti-monopoly, what is its connection to the big issues of the day, what issues they find most interesting, and how do they get into the field, and what are they currently working on? So to kick things off, I'll turn it over to Letra. Thank you so much. Uh, Sandeep, thank you to your role, um, Amy, the Economic Security Project and the LP Project for organizing this fantastic event. I am truly humbled to be among these distinguished co-panelists and will try to be brief. Um, so my work focuses on the regulation of digital markets and of large platform companies such as Alphabet or Meta. Um, and I hope there will be time in Q&A to talk more um, about some current research that I'm carrying out, including a comparative project on U.S., European and African anti-monopoly that is being funded by the Economic Security Project. Um, in my five minutes, I want to focus on the notion of anti-monopoly, what it means, um, what its potential is and what its kind of limits and downsides might be. Um, so I'll start with some definitions. What is anti-monopoly? Uh, Bill Novak's uh, new book, which I highly recommend, describes late 19th century anti-monopoly as first and foremost, a question of the democratic distribution of power and authority in a supposedly self-governing republic. He also suggests that anti-monopoly regulation during the progressive era was primarily about the social control of business. Um, so given this historical precedent, how should we try to understand the notion of anti-monopoly and its relevance as a concept in debates today? And I want to answer this question somehow in the negative by looking at two potential outer boundaries that are commonly associated with the concept of anti-monopoly um, and that, in my view, are misleading and partly cloud our current use of the term and the potential that we could attach to this concept. So the first fallacy I want to discuss is... Um, that I think we are mistaken when we say that anti-monopoly is primarily about fighting big business um, and that it's anti-bigness. That's because distributing power and authority or socially controlling business doesn't necessarily imply the fighting or the outlawing of concentrated or centralized productive functions in an economy. Instead, 
Um, Anti-monopoly could mean regulating and publicizing concentrated private power. You can think of the power of Google in online advertising markets, um, which could remain somewhat centralized, but, but be made more transparent, more accountable, um, fairer towards advertisers and publishers, and more responsive to societal needs. Um, it could also, anti-monopoly could also mean designing centralized ways of overseeing distributed systems, such as blockchain ecosystems or social media networks, um, so as to address certain societal questions like environmental sustainability or free speech concerns. And so unlike commonly held beliefs, anti-monopoly isn't just about fighting bigness. Um, but can also be a way of thinking about both centralized and decentralized structures of production as alternatives on a spectrum that can be weighed against each other um, in specific industry contexts rather than as something that is either virtuous or evil in the abstract. Um, the second fallacy I want to debunk is a tendency to think of anti-monopoly as a list of disciplines, of doctrines, of fields of law, um, such as antitrust, public utility regulation, corporate chartering, public provision, cooperatives. Of course, all these things are included in the concept of anti-monopoly. Um, but as Commissioner Slaughter pointed out um, two minutes ago, markets are shaped by factors that go far beyond the traditional um, kind of toolbox of anti-monopoly. So they include things like predatory lending, consumer protection, civil rights law, labor law, and even the infrastructural form of AI systems. And so the social control of business could require pooling from any number of legal, of technical, and of social approaches to disciplining productive systems that go beyond a finite list of fields of law. Um, and so I'm a technology scholar and um, in tech um, literature, uh, Lawrence Lessig and Joel Reidenberg um, really pointed out that regulation could mean um, a number of things that go beyond law. So it, regulation can stem from material artifacts. Um, the aphorism code is law is quite famous, um, but but regulation can also be the shaping of behavior and of business through social organizing um, and social norms. And so I think that seeing anti-monopoly as a finite list of pre-existing areas of legal doctrine limits the possibilities we have for experimentation with how to control, socially control um, business and production. Um, and this is, I think, particularly problematic in new and emerging markets, such as digital markets, which raise new questions on the relation between law and technical artifacts, um, but also in informal economies that have features that are very, very different from the features of the U.S. economy, for example. And this includes um, economies in the global south, but also um, all over the world. Um, and so I hope to have persuaded you that anti-monopoly can and should should be construed in a capacious way. Um, it is not just an apparatus for fighting bigness. Um, it is not just a finite list of legal approaches, um, but it is a dynamic umbrella of um, approaches that span across law and beyond um, for making markets, infrastructures, and emerging industries more responsive to the needs of society. Thank you. 
Wonderful. Thanks so much for the stimulating remarks, Electra. Next up is Brian. Uh, yeah. So yeah, thanks uh, ESP and LP uh, for inviting me uh, to do this with this group. Um, this is uh, really exciting. Uh, so um, I guess let's start off by saying, you know, the, the original anti-monopoly movement, uh, you know, was a response to the rise of large corporations in the last quarter of the 19th century. Um, and this was a new thing. Uh, people understood that these new entities that were actually created by new laws, new general incorporation laws, could generate material prosperity that was unprecedented in human history. Uh, but also that the people who controlled these corporations, who were now fabulously wealthy and powerful, uh, might want to abuse that newfound vast wealth and power to do stuff like, you know, extort farmers, gouge customers, uh, shoot their workers if they went on strike, and, you know, and even corrupt, you know, democracy itself. So look, I'm an economist. Uh, we tend to assume that what corporations do is maximize profits. Um, and all that stuff I just mentioned, the bad stuff, but also the good stuff corporations do, is all profit maximizing. Um, you can make money by doing the bad things. Uh, so we need rules and guidelines uh, to channel competition in the right direction. Um, so we want the innovation, we want the investment, high wages, low prices. Uh, we don't want the adulterated products, extorting suppliers, discriminating or engaging in predation against communities of color, poison in the water, union busting, all that other kind of stuff that is a way that uh, without guidelines, corporations can increase their profits. Uh, so um, sort of following up on, on what Electra was saying, I think there's a lot of wisdom that we economists at least have forgotten. Uh, lawyers are a little more in tune with this uh, in the tradition of American institutionalist economics. Um, these were the economists who crafted the progressive and New Deal era economic reforms. Um, and unlike their contemporaries over in Great Britain or Austria, uh, that, who were called the neoclassical economists, uh, American institutionalists thought in terms of abstract, uh, sorry, the neoclassicals thought in terms of abstract models, our good American institutionalists uh, were fundamentally pragmatic um, in line with the American pragmatic philosophical tradition. And they were highly attuned to concrete law and policy. And law and policy uh, are what actually create corporations, are what uh, create and structures markets. They set the rules of competition. Um, so John Maurice Clark, uh, one of these institutionalist economists, um, I'll claim him for the institutionalist, some people might call him a neoclassical, but he said that the problem of uh, economic regulation uh, was how are we, meaning the public, to, as Electra said, uh, socially control these corporations. Um, one of his uh, comments was either we control business or business controls us. Um, and because competition is one of the most effective and cheapest ways uh, to control and discipline powerful corporations, uh, antitrust was sort of the first anti-monopoly tool and it's sort of the first line of defense we have. Uh, but it can't be the only one because it's not enough. Uh, Clark also developed what he called the theory of the second best. Uh, and that, what that means is uh, if you don't have all the, comp all the conditions in place for a perfectly competitive market, uh, which is the economist blackboard model where everything works out great for everybody, um, just restoring one of those uh, conditions uh, can actually make things worse. Uh, so anti-monopoly can't just focus on correcting distortions to sort of nudge economies back to this uh, ideal of a blackboard uh, perfect competition model. We actually have to have ongoing uh, active policies to structure and regulate our markets and businesses to make sure they're fulfilling that the, all those socially beneficial functions that we want them to do. So just to take an example, uh, labor markets are inherently uncompetitive um, in the sense that the wage bargain is not between equals. Uh, employers have wage setting power over workers. This is one of those things that I think is kind of obvious if you've ever had a job 
but we economists are, are just catching up on, on, that particular, on that particular issue. Um, so uh, the solution to imperfectly competitive labor markets isn't to go out in the labor market and look for distortions, take them away one by one. Uh, but that's what, uh, you know, uh, some of the sins of conventional antitrust has actually done that. Uh, targeting horizontal agreements among independent contractors who are trying to raise their wages. Or there's a current sort of obsession with occupational licensing as a distortion of the labor market. And neither of these two things are at all even close to responsible for the problems of wage suppression, of wages not keeping up with product productivity, of wages being suppressed. Uh, so the actual solution to labor market power is actually stuff like active policies, boosting worker power, things like minimum wages, which the Fair Labor Standards Act uh, in 1938 classified as an unfair method of competition using antitrust style language, uh, giving businesses an unfair advantage if they were exploiting their workers. Um, collective bargaining, uh, banning uh, employer restraints on labor, labor mobility, like no poach and non-compete agreements. So I think you know, um, uh, anti-monopoly encompasses the full range of policies to rein in corporate power and, and focus competition in the right direction. Um, you know, after all, these are our publicly chartered corporations and our public markets, and they should serve us rather than rather than uh, necessarily always uh, uh, private businesses. Uh, thank you. Great. Thanks so much, Brian. Shout outs to institutionalists are always welcome and appreciated. Uh, over to you, Sita. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm very grateful to LPE and ESC to Commissioner Slaughter and Chair Confederate Marks, and to my collaborators, as well as the community members, past, present, and future that we learn with. Um, my work lies at the intersection of technological governance and social, racial, and economic justice. And for the past seven years, I've been involved with our data bodies, which is a participatory research project that develops a discourse or narrative and a practice around contesting technologies and the institutions and people who develop and manage them. Our original work, which we kind of uh, refer to as ODB Classic, ran from 2015 to 2020, and it focused on surveillance in the broadest um, uh, range possible within the most marginalized neighborhoods of uh, Charlotte, Detroit, and Los Angeles. And our newer, our newest work is focused on workplace surveillance, tech power, and community power. If it's not obvious, I come to the issue of anti-monopoly from the vantage of surveillance and marginalization. And I will say, frankly, that anti-monopoly isn't the first word to roll off the tongue. I'll also add um, that my first foray um, into policy advocacy was on the issue of media concentration at a time where the through line between marginality, free expression, and media plurality or media diversity was arguably very palpable. And that contrasts with the communities and conversations that I've been involved with where the connection between surveillance control and tech power or monopoly power is complex rather than a no-brainer. So we've kind of moved, uh, at least in the spaces that I move in, um, it's a different kind of engagement with uh, these ideas of anti-monopoly. And I get, and, and I very much respect that um, many uh, important organizers, historians, scholars, policymakers have demonstrated the connections, for example, between anti-slavery, anti-racism, anti-monopoly. 
but anti-monopoly really feels like a limiting term to me, partly because it does not affirmatively define the world that we want to live in, a world that is without extractive exploitative industries. And as well, anti-monopoly also um, doesn't quite capture the way in which markets, especially the tech market, seems to have blown apart the very notion of collective or consumer welfare. And um, I'll, I'll also add that um, for me, um, partly because where I sit in academia, um, in these very high-level conversations about uh, tech and tech governance, um, it's I think it's really a great opportunity to puzzle through the changes that we've seen and how the tech sector does its business. It's not only about data extraction, it's also about how the tech sector invests, uh, makes money from money. Um, and, uh, and the experience on the ground that communities are, are, are feeling both in terms of labor, but also um, access to goods and services. So when I think about anti-monopoly research, which I am again, sort of um, uh, at the margins of or intersecting with, I would hypothesize that people's experience, experience of systemic hardships uh, is extremely difficult to articulate, let alone report to, uh, report uh, in part because the political opportunities to do anything about this feel very much out of reach. So this is something that I feel uh, we need to confront uh, and, and really pick apart. The work that we do as a team and uh, with our collaborators is, as I mentioned before, uh, participatory in order to open up conversations that haven't been opened before, or if they're already opened, uh, aren't adequately listened to. Uh, and to generate knowledge in ways that grow conversations, not just in the higher echelons, but at the ground level. So the person or the people who have often the most to gain from research uh, are the most neglected and the least connected. They lack the means to collectivize their grievances and to reach the spaces where key decisions about how companies behave get made. Not to mention, even if they did get to these spaces of decision-making, um, there's a perception that this, these spaces are highly dysfunctional and uh, to the point that it's not clear what, whether the conventional levers for change are even appropriate for the problems at hand. So I, I think essentially what I'm trying to say is I, I'm hoping that partly in this conversation and in future conversations, we're able to really affirmatively identify what is the thing that we're working towards. So it's not a negative thing, anti, but actually for, um, and uh, that we're thinking uh, in imaginative ways about uh, the, ways, the, the ways that we participate in these debates and impact them as well. Thank you. Thanks so much, Rita. That was a very cogent critique and you importantly raised the limits of anti-monopoly as a concept and I think rightly uh, raised the question, have we jumped the gun in calling the anti-monopoly movement a movement? Uh, so over to you, Lenore. Great. Uh, always good to be uh, with such a great group. And thanks so much for having me. Let me first say how much I appreciate, you know, the work that Economic Security Project is doing, that LPE is doing, um, all the organizers who put this event together. And I'll 
uh, just give my support as a sort of yes and for all the previous comments. It's really great and, and uh, sort of gratifying to be with people who are thinking radically about corporate power. So I'm going to actually maybe pick up a little bit on what Tito was just saying. Um, in terms of when I you know, thought about how do I want to answer the question, what does anti-monopoly work mean to me and why is it important work that I'm, that I'm doing? I want to flip the question a little bit, actually. I think that doing work to reduce corporate power is important because what we actually need is a productive and democratic economy that supports real innovation to meet our needs and not elite extraction. So full stop, right? Our economy is structured by histories of oppression in terms of race, gender, colonialism, the current climate collapse that we're all watching happen in front of our eyes. And so anti-monopoly work needs to grapple with this and keep pushing us towards structuring the economy that we want, not just what we don't want, not just focusing on what we don't want. And I just think we need to do this with absolute urgency, given the reality of authoritarianism and the fires that we're all watching online today. Um, so let me get a little bit more specific and talk about two of the, you know, two of the many, but two key issues that I'll add in that I think we need to really pay attention to when we're doing anti-monopoly sort of scholarship and, and research. So first, we need to really just shake off any lingering uh, commitments to the microeconomic conception of perfect competition. And Brian spoke about this as well. But there's this idea uh, that, that still persists in our analysis of market power and the harms that it creates, that if only we had an economy where there were an infinite number of small businesses, households with no power dynamics of any kind, prices would become a kind of passive language by which we would produce and consume and everything would work out, right? It's an incorrect and problematic framework for so many reasons that you know we, we don't have time to go into. But I think for our purposes, for talking about corporate power and market power work, it's really important that we're absolutely clear that taking on market power is not about moving us towards some world in which workers are paid a wage that is equivalent to their marginal product, or that businesses would, if there's sufficient antitrust regulation, simply charge a price equivalent to some marginal cost. This is not how the economy works now. It's actually not how the economy has ever worked. The theory itself is based on flawed assumptions and setting perfect competition as our baseline that we seek to, to meet when doing work to combat, to combat market power will lead us down, uh, I think, dangerous paths. So that's sort of uh, point one. Point two, and this is where I've um, been spending a lot of my time, you know, building on, you know, what are we actually focusing on when we focus on market power and corporate power? I think we need to return to, you know, this older institutionalist understanding of the corporation as a social institution that not only is um, granted public permission to operate uh, by the government, and therefore we have the rights uh, to create the rules within which it operates, but also from an economic standpoint, requires strategic um, and organizational capacities along with financial commitments to innovate over time. So to me, this involves breaking definitively with the shareholder primacy view of the corporation, which is this idea that shareholders are the most important group to any large business because they, in theory, in, in the theory, contribute the financial resources used for production. This is, in short, a totally incorrect framework for what corporations are and how they uh, produce because value creators and businesses are workers, um, because shareholders today mainly trade shares with each other meaning the financial assets that they're trading never actually interact with the firm at all and so and stay within financial institutions enriching a small wealthy white elite so this idea of corporations existing to maximize shareholder value 
is also one that sometimes I do see really creep into anti-monopoly work, work that I think has the right uh, commitments and sort of intention around analyzing how um, how dominant corporations are operating in specific product markets. But it is, I think, a really dangerous assumption to be there even implicitly. So we need to refocus on what it actually means to have productive economic institutions, both businesses and markets, um, and, and think about the types of rules and frameworks we need to actually meet, meet the goals uh, of the economy that we want to see. And I'll just um, close by mentioning one other more specific point that I think um, was uh, jumps off the question of what are we working on? What are we interested in? I'm really interested right now in work that focuses on specific sectors, specific goods and services sectors, and thinking about the right balance that we might strike for the type of social control of business, for the type of um, structuring of a given uh, good or service that we want to see. So we have choices, even though right now our politics feels very hard. But we do have choices uh, in a democracy uh, between decommodifying certain goods, goods and services, enabling production of goods and services in large private entities with appropriate social controls, and um, creating and nurturing complex ecosystems of small businesses and different types of entities. I think the balancing act that we want to strike between these different forms of production is actually industry specific. So it's very different in healthcare or for me in the case of um, one, one sector I'm researching right now, electric vehicles and the new grid necessary for the electrification of transportation. It's very different than it would be in retail or as, as many of the other speakers have focused on in the worlds of big data or in finance. I think the sectoral approach, which explicitly takes into account public production as well as other standard approaches to industrial policy, as well as thinking about the balance between large entities and, and and uh, ecosystems of small businesses is one of the most interesting places for us all to be putting our attention right now because there is no one cookie cutter approach that we should look for in terms of the, the structuring of any given sector in the economy. Um, I think we have a real chance to move this work forward and we have real urgency now to not just take a 20th century view of how to structure the economy, but we have to be specific, not general in order to be most effective. So I'll close there and look forward to the rest of the conversation. Thanks. Yeah, thanks so much, Lenore. I think your righteous criticism of perfect competition cannot be stated often enough. Even in reform circles, I see people clinging to these deeply flawed neoclassical notions and trying to you know, repurpose them for good ends. And I think it's a, it's a dangerous, dangerous game to be playing. So I'm going to start the discussion portion. It's going to be fairly short, unfortunately, but the question for all four panelists, and just raise your hand if you want to answer it. What's missing from the anti-monopoly conversation at present? What research questions are overlapping and adjacent fields and disciplines are ripe for exploration? I can say maybe uh, just one brief point to start us off, which is something that um, really goes well beyond anti-monopoly work in many ways. But I think that those of us who are operating inside sort of policy research and academic spaces um, need to be constantly paying attention to how we are working with and supporting other types of social movements, other types of organizing groups. So I think within the, you know, quote unquote, anti-monopoly space, there's a lot of um, organizations that are doing really critical work right now taking on concentrated corporate power. And we can look at everything from the, um, the union organizing happening at uh, Amazon, at Starbucks, um, the, you know, all the other great um, uprisings we've seen over the last couple of years, 
we can look at groups like the Institute for, for Local Self-Reliance, ACRE, the Action Center for Research in the Economy, or for Race <laughs> in the Economy, um, lots of others. And I think that that type of intersection is actually um, something that a lot of people talk about and point to, but don't actually spend time really doing. Uh, and so that's one place that I would encourage anyone who's you know, watching this panel and interested in thinking about how to approach this work for themselves to, to really think about how you might engage. Electra, Brian, Sita, any thoughts on this question? I'm happy to say something. I want to put a plug for, I mean, first I want to underscore how much I agree with Lenore's emphasis on specificity and contextuality, which I think is is the key um, to how to kind of rethink paradigms. But I wanted to put a plug for comparative work. um, And it's kind of in the similar vein of comparing institutions, comparing contexts, comparing histories, and the same question, the same problem. And, And I'm looking at this from a, you know, tech kind of lens and looking at tech markets. But obviously, that I think is true of any market and industry. Um, The way in which institutions operate um, really varies across regions. And so there's no one size fits all answer. And, you know, in Europe, people tend to emphasize the state more and might need to emphasize it maybe a bit less or rethink bureaucracy in certain ways, whereas maybe in the U.S. there's a need for more institutions. Um, And then when we move to a place like Kenya, and there are all sorts of other questions um, that arise on how do we trust government and why should we trust private um, companies that maybe come from Western um, or are controlled by Western shareholders and and so who should make decisions there. Um, and so, you know, and, and so I think that comparative work is, is really important and empirical work um, comparing um, institutions across regions also is key. Yeah, I think the sector-specific approach is really striking when you read the works of the institutionalists and the legal realists. You know, they conducted in-depth studies of specific sectors and recognized that what might work in electric power doesn't work for the manufacturing of shoes. And it's just qualitatively different from what you see many mainstream economists do today, where they just draw the supply and demand diagram, supply and demand diagrams, and say, "Well, we can use this tool to explain everything that's happening in the economy," which is absurd when you think about it for even fifteen seconds. Uh, any other thoughts on what's missing, Brian, Sita? I would just chime in for you if there's any, you know, people looking to, you know, students looking to do research. I think there's a, um, a frontier of this area that people, there aren't, isn't a lot of activity yet, is the uh, intersection of, I'm an economist, so for the economists and for other researchers, between stratification economics uh, and, and anti-monopoly. Stratification economics is as developed by, you know, scholars like uh, William Barrity. And Derek Hamilton looks at structural inequalities tied to group membership, you know, black, white inequalities, uh, male, female inequalities. And that's um, sort of an area that I think we're missing a lot of anti-monopoly work. Um, uh, just in particular, really quick, uh, there's a, a book by a scholar named Marshall Shadowling uh, called Franchise the Golden Arches in Black America. And it's about how when policy tried to create more black entrepreneurship, rather than actually fostering independent, truly independent businesses, they sort of uh, gave people gave uh, black entrepreneurs on opportunities that were sort of junior partners to giant white-owned corporations. And so, who who appropriated most of the benefits of the McDonald's chain? It wasn't the black franchisees; it was the corporate owners. So, I think that's that's sort of an area where where these things could, uh, a frontier of research that I think needs more needs more work. 
Um, as somebody that feels, uh, again, slightly outside of this domain, I'm not an economist, I'm a social scientist, and I'm a minority in my field in that I approach my research as a participatory, with participatory methodologies. I guess what I um, am constantly struck by in these conversations is the relationship with, between some of the new emer emergent thinking on either whether, whether it's a critique or an affirmative statement of what needs to be. And uh, the gap between that discussion and an assessment of the political landscape in which decisions get made and, and changes get made. And I feel like um, uh, I, I'm lacking the inspiration there. Like part of what is very challenging about holding space and holding conversation about these issues is um, not that people on the ground don't have anything to say. There's a lot to be said. It's the translation and the movement of these ideas and the impacts of these ideas into real political change. So I feel like in, in an environment that is, yes, as one of the co-panelists said, very challenging, right? Lots of fires right now, literal and uh, figurative, right? I, I think that sense of political powerlessness is really important to address alongside uh, whatever emerging discourse we have around anti-monopoly. Yeah, I think one irony of anti-monopoly, at least thus far, is it's been very elite-led and technocratic, which is one of the critiques of the Chicago School. And you know, at least thus far, the, the reform project seems to be operating along very similar lines, where the, the aim seems to be to persuade elite decision makers, whether it's judges or uh, heads of agencies or members of Congress. And there is a major disconnect between currents in popular politics, uh, certainly a disconnect between popular movements and what's happening in this uh, fairly elite and narrow space of anti-monopoly. So, Can I just add an additional oh, sure. point, really, which Absolutely. is to say that I am struck because I live out outside of the U.S. Um, I'm really interested in if, if anyone is actually doing research on sort of populist takes on anti-monopoly and um, how that discourse and narrative is really being taken up within those um, populations. Yeah, I think that's a really rich vein for uh, exploration. And I guess the second question for the panel flows from what you just said, Sita. So who are scholars doing cutting edge research and whose work deserves greater attention? And maybe this research is yet to be done. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a tough one to answer because you don't want to leave people out. <laughs> Um, so I'll just say, I think, I don't know that I can sort of come up with a list of people, but I think that um, maybe a, a partial answer to that question is the more that we create spaces like this, or the more that those of us who come from different um, disciplines have ways to interact around the research that we're doing and around um, the strategic thinking we're doing, I think the better. And I think one of the challenges, at least for me in academia, is that uh, the focus is always on presenting your own research or on sort of putting your own ideas forward. Um, and so there's, you know, several spaces, you know, that that several of you are involved in that uh, really do allow people to come together and have um, sort of more generative and collaborative, uh, you know, conversations. And I think the more that we could do that, like we're doing today, um, I think we would be encouraging not only we be building our own capacity, but also be welcoming more people in um, to be part of a larger conversation about what we're what we're trying to accomplish with our economy. I'll jump in quickly to say that 
I really love the work of a collection of uh, feminist scholars, uh, mostly working in Europe, uh, with one exception in Canada. Um, Seda Gersis, Martha Poon, Helen Pritchard, Miriam Arak, and Femke Snelling, uh, amongst others, I think are doing really, really interesting work around uh, thinking about comp compute power and computational infrastructure. Having that conversation has been really, or them opening up that conversation about compute power has been really eye-opening with respect to the conversation about platform power and our focus on data. And what I like about that work and what I like about uh, the work that Martha Poon has done in particular, in particular is to really um, get us thinking about how as I had mentioned earlier, money is made from money by tech companies and the ways in which that is de-democratizing, right? So it's even harder to have a shareholder campaign if you would want that. But as a consumer, right, it means that more choices are being forced upon you. And so I'm really, um, uh, yeah, interested and, and inspired by that work uh, and what it, how it kind of causes me to, to think about companies and company behavior in a different way and innovation too, right? Because it's almost as if it's an innovation in making money. It's not necessarily an innovation in tech. Yeah, that's a really good point about innovation. It's one of those words that's treated as categorically good. Innovation is good, but the reality is there's good innovation and bad innovation. And a great deal of the innovation we've seen in recent times is bad innovation. Companies figuring out how to uh, skirt, evade, violate the letter, certainly the spirit of many laws. So I think a critical engagement on uh, what innovation is, what competition is, is, is really necessary and essential for the anti-monopoly work to, to go forward in a coherent, you know, sensible, public-minded way. It's really hard to come up with a list. There are so many scholars that are amazing. There are some scholars that Cherkan mentioned that, of course, um, do incredible work, including here. I want to mention a few Europeans or um, English scholars that have been following over the years that I think are thinking about things that are not necessarily discussed in the U.S. Um, so people like Michelle Miager, I'm currently thinking a lot about the boundaries or intersection between regulation and antitrust. And I discovered the work of Nian Dunn who at LSE, who's, uh, who Sita might know very well, but that's quite useful, interesting work for me right now. There are people in technology and antitrust and kind of at the intersection of tech and um, data protection and antitrust are really interesting. Orla Linsky, Inga Graf, um, Ian Brown, um, and people doing cooperativism work as well, like Morshid Manan um, um, that I've uh, worked with for a while. And, and I highly admire his work and, and think that we should think more about cooperativism as well. So, um, so yeah, so that's, that's a very partial list. And I, I wish I could mention more scholars from the global South. And that's something that um, me and my co-authors are, are working on. So I may, may be able to um, create such a list uh, soon. Wonderful. I hardly second your recommendation of Rashad's work. I think it's really cutting edge. And uh, cooperative firm governance is uh, an important part of the anti-monopoly or historic anti-monopoly program that is still, I think, existing only at the margins, but 
I hope that'll change in the coming years. So now we'll segue to the audience Q&A and I'm going to use my moderator's prerogative. We received a number of good questions here, but I'll start with the provocative question, uh, one that has come up in other spaces. Uh, is the social control of production, well, socialism? If so, why is the anti-monopoly movement shying away from engaging with socialist communist thought to the best of my knowledge? More broadly, does the movement take capitalism for granted? I'll Who try. wants to go first? <laughs> go for it, Brian. Um, so, you know, the thing about the words, the, the words socialism uh, and capitalism, I'm not sure what people mean by them. They have, you know, they, depending on, you know, what tradition you're coming from, they, they, they take on all kinds of different meetings. I don't think the government should own everything. Um, and it's a lot of time, you know, sort of like a standard article you see in some you know, left-wing publications is nationalize this, nationalize that. Um, now your employer has an army. I'm not sure that's really, you know, uh, from a, you know, from a worker perspective, that's where you want to go. Um, I, I, so, I, I mean, I, I like social control because it's sort of a, um, uh, I don't think corporations should not exist. Uh, I think that there are a bunch of different ways to govern them. I think private capital is too much power, workers not enough. I don't want to own my own business. I like being an employee. That's sort of the risk profile that I like for my life. Um, I don't want to go to a bunch of meetings, uh, you know, to determine, you know, what's going to be sold to Dunkin' Donuts. I just want to be able to shop around. So I think, you know, there are, and I'm not, you know, that's not the caricature of the socialism. It's just that um, I think that we should, we should be talking about the specific sort of policies and programs we want to see um, rather than um, like these blanket terms. So that's why I like social con control, not out of any anim animosity. Um, and, and I think there is a fair bit. I wish there was more. and I would love there to be more uh, engagement um, between anti-monopoly and, and, and uh, social Democrats, uh, democratic socialists and socialists. That would be very interesting. Um, but so far, um, yeah, we haven't. Um, that, that would be a rich conversation to have. Can I ask a question that's actually built on that? Because I, I, um, I get this term, social control of production, but, um, it, you know, it obviously has a history, et cetera. But um, just, you know, off the tongue, it's, it sounds uh, formidable, <laughs> right? It does actually sort of spike, uh, yeah, kind of that connection, accurate or inaccurate <laughs> to socialism and communism. And so I'm just curious if there have been any attempts to, to think about what term could be applied that would invoke a, a different imagination, a different imaginary. I think, yeah, if I can ch chime in on that, I think that's a great point. And I think, you know, we didn't really uh, start this conversation saying this super clearly, but, you know, we all... Um, have grown up in the water of neoliberal neoliberalism. We've grown up in the, you know, the air surrounding us is this idea that um, markets are going to clear if only we remove uh, obstructions. And some people might think the obstruction is government. Some people might think the obstruction is uh, large dominant corporations. But in either case, there's this idea that we're going for some kind of market supremacy or market clearing. And so I think that being, you know, this is, goes to what Brian said about, well, okay, what do we mean by capitalism? You know, are we talking about neoliberal capitalism? Are we talking about state capitalism? You know, I, I, I that's a whole other. I would need a couple drinks, I think, to really get into that uh, level of political theorizing. That's not what I do uh, most of the day. But I think, in terms of you know, Sita's point, when we're talking about um, you know social control of business, I think you know, Steve Stephen Vogel is a um, uh, has a phrase market craft, market crafting, which is supposed to evoke the idea of, of state crafting. Um, I think that there's 
been a bunch of debates recently online where, you know, people are talking about productivism or, produ- you know, how to be uh, supply side progressives. I really think we need better language. Um, I don't know what the better language is. Uh, I'm happy to be, you know, a democratic socialist in my politics. I, you know, I agree with Brian. I'm not someone who thinks the uh, government should produce everything, but I do think the government should produce uh, more things than it does now. But I think that this question of um, how to build also an anti-monopoly or, you know, a movement for economic democracy to have social movements, people need to be able to see each other and recognize each other as part of the same social movement. That's, I think, really fundamental to how we see social change happening uh, in the world. And so I think part of what, um, you know, I like to talk about economic democracy because it sort of rings some bells um, for me, but I, I, I do think we need more clarity about the um, type of economy that we're trying to envision and, and create so that we can create the social movement where people all feel part of the same effort. But I don't know what to call it. <laughs> um, so my two cents on this. Um, I think I think anti-monopoly, so I'm currently working on this question of antitrust and regulation. And what is the relation between these two and kind of theories that focus on efficiency or obstruction precisely and kind of perfect competition and how bad they are at maybe trying to bridge divides between these areas. And so I tend to think about the question of anti-monopoly as divided into two groups of problems. One is a descriptive problem. Can we remap doctrines of law um, in ways that make better sense of the issues at stake, or rather that give regulators more possibilities on how to act in markets? notwithstanding or no matter their normative values, whether they're socialists, whether they're not socialists, right? It doesn't matter. We still need a framework that allows regulators to better address questions that emerge and arise in markets. Um, And then there is a separate question that is, okay, so what are the norms that should guide the regulation of markets or the regulation of production? And I think that's a separate question and can be answered in various ways. And um, I think people in the anti-monopoly movement might hold very different views on on how exactly one needs to regulate these productive systems. Um, And even within, say, the the label socialism, I think there are um, visions that are very much about a planned socialist economy. And then there are visions that are much more cooperatives based, that are much more about bottom-up worker-owned enterprises and kind of small units of production and 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 that can be a socialist economy as well right so so and do we want to call those things the same i don't know and and which one is better i mean i'm not going to discuss that here but uh, but but i think but i think that's how i would divide the two yeah, just to, i would echo lenore on economic democracy i think it doesn't have some of the um, historical baggage that some of the other terms do maybe unfortunate negative associations that are held in the United States. And I think it also importantly recognizes the, the need for institutional diversity. You know, we, we do want state ownership of certain things, you know, infrastructures, for example. I think it makes a lot of sense for the federal government to own and operate the power grid. But in other cases, we might want uh, much smaller economic units uh, owned and controlled by workers, owned and controlled by communities, maybe some type of joint governance agreement uh, arrangements. So I personally like economic democracy, but I'm only the moderator, so I'm not going to talk too much. Uh, there are a number of interesting questions in the Q&A. So this is really in Lenora's wheelhouse, so I can't help but ask it. 
what role could federal corporate chartering play in structuring and enforcing more democratic, uh, enforcing a more democratic and sustainable economy for the common good? Um, great point. It could be a uh, necessary, but also completely insufficient tool to make sure that we actually have the potential ability to regulate uh, large corporations and regulate corporate governance. So I'll just say like something that even many people working, I think, in anti-monopoly or antitrust spaces seem to not know is something that um, several of you mentioned at the at the outset, but is deserving of much further research and investigation by anyone interested, which is that the early establishment of the FTC was a, a social reform movement that went uh, hand in hand with movements for federal chartering of large corporations. Um, and really the process by which we got the FTC and did not get federal chartering of large corporations was the type of uh, political maneuvering that we are quite familiar with today, watching the demise of Build Back Better. There were political compromises that happened that enabled states to continue to be the chartering, uh, to have chartering authority over corporations, which has led to the situation today where um, the for example, the, the fight happening right now over whether or not Elon Musk is going to be forced to buy Twitter is happening in Delaware, a state with 800,000 people, rather than happening in a, in a federal government space. So there's a lot of, um, you know, history here that the, the, you know, why we have state chartering of corporations and not federal chartering is completely, uh, not an accident, but completely historically, politically contingent, not intentional, not because state chartering is somehow better. And so, you know, there's been several efforts over the last couple of years, most principally by Senator Elizabeth Warren, to bring forward legislation in the Accountable Capitalism Act that would actually ensure that federal corporations are, uh, or that large corporations are federally licensed or chartered. We could get into lots of details there, but I think this is absolutely necessary and also, of course, would be completely insufficient to then uh, you know, make the kinds of changes we want to see, but but it's really an important enabling step. Any other thoughts on federal chartering of corporations, the promise, the perils? I, I don't know a whole lot about it, but um, I, I'm just kind of imagining having this conversation in the communities that we work with, and I'm, I'm wondering what I'm going to be, how I'm going to be telling this story. And it's uh, sounds like a hard one. It sounds like a, a tough sell, to be honest, because it feels like there will be, um, we will see the rise of many intermediaries that will game the process. And so, unfortunately, I think that contributes to, uh, you know, a widening sense of political cynicism over the types of solutions that are being sought and not necessarily trickling down to benefits at the community level. Yeah, we do have one relatively unhappy example of federal chartering. So since the National Bank Act of 1863, many banks, especially the biggest banks, have been nationally chartered. And uh, I think the general assessment is that uh, regulatory system worked reasonably well uh, with some obvious imperfections and exclusionary defects uh, for about 40 years in the 30s to the 70s. But uh, on the whole, over its 150-year or 160-year history of federal chartering of banks has not been uh, particularly successful or, you know, a model we'd necessarily want to tout in support of federal chartering reforms. So turning to other questions in the Q&A, there's one specific for Brian, but obviously open to the entire panel. Brian contended that the first anti-monopoly movement was the antitrust movement. What about the pre-Civil War land reform movement? It was a genuine mass movement and gave us the Homestead Act and the land-grant colleges. 
Uh, that's uh, that's yeah. I guess you could always uh, find antecedents. Um, uh, I guess further and further in history. That that's a good example. Um, uh, like many of these, though, I think more than the than the, than the Sherman Antitrust Act. That's you know, um, as I say, problematic uh, because the Homestead Act and the and the and the land grant colleges were a theft of, of land uh, from, uh, from 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 uh, you know sovereign native nations. So that you know, like I don't. I, you could see it as a as a contestation of, of monopoly, but I don't think you know. Just like the um, the first labor legislation we ever passed was the Chinese Exclusion Act. Uh, I'm not sure that's um, you know it's a it is an antecedent, but it's not one I think we want to emulate or 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 repeat again. I would say. Oh, here's an interesting question that just came in for everyone. It seems like unions are another issue where researchers are forced to define the world which anti-monopoly seeks to build. How do you think the labor movement and large unions connect to the anti-monopoly movement? Brian? <laughs> um, Panelists I, should, well, or, uh, audience members should know that Brian has written many great articles on this exact question, so you should read them. No, so I'll say this. I think a lot of the progressive antitrust is, I don't think they chose the name, but have been called neo-Brandeisians. Um, and uh, Louis Brandeis was not, an, was not a perfect friend of labor, uh, but he did understand the labor movement. Um, he uh, and he he actually uh, brokered what's called the Protocol of Peace, which was the first um, you know collective bargaining agreement uh, in the garment industry of New York City. Um, and there's a bunch of and his sort of his vision for uh, for markets is that they will be co-governed by strong unions. Uh, so his his way of dealing with um, concentrated corporate power was not just breaking up corporate power, but also bringing workers to the table, have sort of a um, a co-governance of both the internal management of the of the corporations, so cooperatives, but also co-governance of markets. So I just flagged two things that I think are happening today that are very much of the Brandeisian spirit. Um, in California, there's a movement of uh, fast food workers to get uh, sectoral councils, uh, which would include both the small business franchisees. Uh, the corporations, McDonald's, and representative workers to set minimum standards for the industry. Um, that is a very sort of Brandeisian uh, idea. Another one is, um, I, I unfortunately didn't pass this session in the legislature, but in New York City, nail salon workers have been pushing for um, a uh, sectoral regulation that will govern not just the uh, the wages, but also the prices. Um, so sort of allow, like one way that uh, you can raise wages is to allow all the nail salons to merge into one nail salon. They can, they can raise prices to consumers and then they can pay wages. Another way is to allow all the small shops to continue to be small, but have, have a way so that they don't have to compete by putting wages in competition, by, by sort of you know, fighting against each other to run sweatshops. They can all agree, this is the minimum price we're gonna charge. This is the minimum wage. Um, so I think those, those, I don't have a comprehensive, here's the plan for labor. Unions could do that themselves. Right? Those are just a couple of examples of things that I think are, um, uh, not to mention all of the Amazon, you know, organizing and work like that that's going on. Any other thoughts on the connection between labor and anti-monopoly? I will just jump in to stay tuned, right? I mean, I think what the research that we're doing with our data bodies isn't explicitly about movements, uh, but we're trying to make these connections and conversations happen. Uh, so, yeah, stay tuned. Great. Thanks so much for the stimulating discussion, everyone. I've learned a lot and it's been very provocative and interesting. We've already gone nine minutes over, so I'll turn it over to, to Becky to wrap up this great event. 
Thanks so much, Sandeep. And thank you so much for, for, for everybody for sticking with us, for going over a few minutes, um, for joining us today. Thank you to our esteemed panel, to our speakers for all those rich nuggets of information. And like Sandeep said, many provocative questions, Chair Khan and Commissioner Slaughter at the FTC for their remarks. The law, and political, the law and Political Economy Project, especially Corrine, um, Amy, and Raul, and the folks behind the scenes at ESP, Kara, Michael, Christian, and Gabby for helping us put together a fantastic event. Um, if you'd like to follow our grantees' work as they conduct their research, um, we've dropped their Twitter handles in the chat, and we can reshare that again. Um, and you can also be sure to follow us on Twitter at Economic Security Project um, and LPE underscore project. Um, the recording of this event will be available on our website soon. And I believe the audio will also be available on uh, Tech Policy Press, um, uh, their podcast. And this was probably not our last event on this topic. So please stay tuned. Thank you so much. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Special thanks to Becky Chow at the Economic Security Project. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.